Good morning. Thank you, musicians. You all are so talented. I was thinking as Tara was playing, we have a lot of good pianists. Last week, I was so blessed by Richard's solo on the piano. And then this morning, I was even blessed by a Florida Gator on the piano. And <laughs> but we have a lot of talented musicians, and I'm very grateful for you. Well, Happy New Year to those of you who are just arriving. <laughs> You've been out of town. Good for you. Good for you. We're beginning year three. Year three. Uh, I am, I should say I am, but I, I really mean we are because we're doing it together of a church going in a, in a new direction. And when I came into my staff, uh, when I started, <laughs> oh boy, was I dumb. When I came into my staff, I gave them a five-year vision and I made it very simple. The first year was reach and retain. One year. Let's reach and retain as many people as we can. I don't know if you follow the history of churches and how what happens to churches when pastors who've been there for quite some time leave. It's not a good history, but the church stayed the course. And I am very, very pleased with those of you who have stuck with us. Thank you so much for your commitment. The Lord, the Lord appreciates it, and I can tell you I do too. But then we began our next year, our next phase, and that was to strengthen and deepen Strengthen and deepen the faith of every believer. And so it is our goal over these next two years. Last year we focused on how we could begin the process of learning to love God more and love others more. And so we saw that there was a connection between theology and practice, what we do with our lives. And the emphasis was a lot last year, heavily emphasis are a heavy emphasis on application of God's word. That is always an important thing. But it is crucial that if we're going to be an obedient people, we have to know the one in whom we are following. If we are going to be the type of people that God expects us to be, we have to know God and in year three, I want to begin this sermon series, this year with a sermon series entitled Basic Christianity. I have three objectives. Number one, to combat ignorance with information. Today, we are living in a time where human beings are privileged to have Thousands of pieces of information come at them each day. We have had in the last year a phenomenon known as fake news. And people were taken for granted that these stories that they were reading on the internet were completely true. They didn't understand that they had to check out the source to see if there was any integrity behind the source. They were just taking the information, getting on their social media pages, and ranting and raving about fake news. And not only that, we've seen people that we love and trust recently in the news 
deceive us with information by giving us false information. So not only did we look at bad sources, but even the sources that we learned to trust were showing themselves to be untrustworthy. Edwin Yamauchi, professor of ancient Near Eastern studies, has said that the internet is one of the greatest dangers to education today there is. It is also one of the greatest tools. But the reason why it is a danger is because there is so much false information on it and we are a people who have forgotten how to think and that is the formula for disaster. False information and an inability to think is the formula for disaster. Second, my hope in this series is to teach Christians how to rightly divide the truth. Our verse for the year is 2 Timothy 2.15. I want to tell you what I've noticed in Christian circles. We are ashamed of the truth. We are. If you weren't ashamed of the truth, you wouldn't remain silent at the water cooler, on your social media pages, in the classroom, with your friends, That's what we do when we're ashamed. We hide ourselves and we go into silence because we are ashamed. But the person who rightly divides the word of God and understands it does not need to be ashamed. Why? Because he understands God's word and he handles it with care. The reason why so many of us are ashamed of our faith is because we have neglected to understand our faith. So in the pulpit this year, it is my goal to teach you the basic truths of Christianity. On Wednesday night, we are teaching you how to handle your Bible with care so that you might be adequate and you do not need to be ashamed. The third thing I want to do is I hope to demolish any barriers to any person who is a non-believer. A lot of people will say that they have intellectual barriers to the faith. Scripture will tell us that it is our unrighteousness that is the barrier to our faith. Paul says that by their unrighteousness, men suppress the truth. They see the truth of God. God has revealed it to them, but they are pushing it down. They are suppressing it. It is their unrighteousness that causes them to do that. And so we are impressed when people tell us about their intellectual barriers and we say, yeah, we understand. But the truth behind it is, is that really it's their unrighteousness. It is their own sin. Nevertheless, It is also our responsibility to demolish those strongholds that are quote-unquote intellectual barriers to your faith. And if you haven't come to the faith yet, it is my hope this year that through these series, through this series of messages, that you will come to know Christ and know him truly. This morning, I want to begin the series with a fundamental belief of basic Christianity 
namely the belief in God. Let's pray. Father, the work that I have set out to do this year is completely in your hands. If you, Lord, want us to grow and strengthen and deepen in our relationship with you and with others, Lord, you will have to do it. I pray that you will use me and use these messages to encourage believers, to demolish strongholds for unbelievers, and to fight ignorance with information, Lord. We have seen how the Christian faith has been maligned And it is my goal, Lord, to be a voice from the pulpit for you and to defend your truth and to rightly divide your truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you will do the work in the hearts of the people, that you will do a work in my heart as well as the pastor, and that together, Lord, we will be a congregation in 2018 that loves you more and loves others more. But we pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit that you do this work, God, and we leave it in your hand. Amen. The opening of line of the Bible establishes what is called the metaphysical precondition for your faith. That's a big word. Meta just means beyond, and physical just means beyond the physical, beyond what we can experience with our five senses. I want to warn you before I get started with these sermons, just indulge me. Some of the words might be big, but don't be afraid of them. They're not scary words. They're words that we have to know. And they're words that we have to be able to rightly divide. But the opening line of the Bible establishes a precondition for our faith. It begins with these words. In the beginning, God. Metaphysics is the study of ultimate reality. Or that which transcends the limitations of our subjective perspective and is established in and of itself, contingent upon no one or no thing outside of itself. It is what reality is. What is real? What is the pure, unadulterated truth? That is the pursuit of metaphysics. What's the purpose and meaning of life? Why are we here? And the Bible begins explaining the purpose and meaning of life with these words, in the beginning, God. To say that God's existence is a precondition is to simply state the obvious, though not at all mundane, namely that if any and all of our beliefs about stories of and hopes in the Christian faith are to be taken seriously as the truth, God must exist. You say, well, we're Christians, so we believe that God exists. Unfortunately, the statistics tell us otherwise. That people today can call themselves Christians without believing in God. Why? Because they believe that Christianity is about doing good works. It is about doing good deeds. I just heard somebody this past week say, man, Christians are supposed to be about love and caring for the poor. And I rarely ever see that. 
Yes, that is a part of our faith. But Christians are to proclaim God's story to the world. They are to do it with their words and their action. But the problem is that so many times we reduce the Christian faith to actions and reduce the Christian faith to something other than God himself. Norman Geisler says that belief in God is the precondition for evangelical theology. It is fundamental to all else, being the framework within which everything else has its meaning. It makes no sense to speak about the Bible being the word of God unless there is a God. Christians fall into this trap constantly. They tell atheists that the Bible says, but they're atheists. They don't believe in God. So they don't believe the authority that you're saying has authority. He says, likewise, it is meaningless to talk about Christ as the son of God unless there is a God who can have a son. And miracles, the special acts of God, are not possible unless there is a God who can perform these special acts. In fact, says Geisler, everything in evangelical theology is based on this metaphysical foundation of theism, a belief in God. At this point, I must warn you against piddling around with the notion that God's existence is predicated upon yours and mine belief. God's existence does not depend on whether or not you believe in him. He exists whether or not you or I believe in him. This is not an, an instance of it's real if you believe it. If God exists, he exists for me and for every atheist in the world. God's existence is not predicated upon your belief. And so I must warn you not to assume that if you don't believe him, that believe in him that somehow God disappears. No. God's existence is predicated upon his self-existence and not human belief. But the Bible tells us not only is his existence predicated in himself and based in himself, but that those who do not believe are responsible for their unbelief. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the word suppress just means to push down. The way I describe it is when my brother and I would stay in Nashville with my grandmother. She only had a small little two-bedroom house. My parents slept on a roll-out uh, sofa, and we slept in the back room. <clears throat> and my brother, who was eight years older than me, would pinch me or hit me or do something annoying to me. And I would yell, Mom! And he would take the pillow and he would put it over my face so that Mom wouldn't come in there. And mom would walk in, did I hear something? No, mom, I don't know what you're talking about. Meanwhile, David's holding my face. What is he doing? He's suppressing my voice. 
In other words, I'm there and I'm screaming out and he's making a moral decision to shut me up. By the way, I love my brother, just in case. Just, just in case you're wondering. I lived. He could hear me. And Paul says that's what we do with the evidence and the reason and the revelation of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and we suppress their voice. Oh, God speaks. It is us, it is we who suppress his voice. He says, by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, there is no civilization that does not believe in a God of some sort. They might believe in many. They might believe in one. They might believe in spirits. But they believe that there is a God based upon the uniqueness of creation. He says here, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in idolatry, we worship the created thing rather than the creator. This morning, I want to explain the various revelations of God and explain why we are responsible for the sin of unbelief. First, let me begin by correcting an incorrect view of the Christian faith. It is often incorrectly assumed by critics of Christianity that Christians do not consider any truth but the Bible. That is an incorrect view of the Christian faith. Critics suggest that Christians reject scientific inquiry as well as logic in, and reason in favor of the Bible alone. But nothing could be further from the truth. Christians have historically believed that the Bible is the final authority, but not the only authority on truth. I went to a Christian school. I learned the Pythagorean theorem. You know what? The Pythagorean theorem cannot be found in the Bible. I learned about the Civil War, but it cannot be found in the Bible. My Christian teachers taught me about science and the fishermen in the lake. But that analogy is nowhere in the Bible. And these are truths. And Christians believe in truth outside of the Bible. But we believe that the final truth, the truth that gets the final word on science, the truth that gets the final word on history, the truth that gets the final word on psychology. The truth that gets the final word on morality is the word of God. 
and that any science, any morality that contradicts the word of God will not be tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. So Christians do believe in truth outside of the Bible, but not as the ultimate truth. But nevertheless, some claim that Christianity has no grounding outside of the Bible itself. Isn't the Christian belief in God based on circular reasoning, they say? Christians believe that God exists only because the Bible that they say God wrote says so. In other words, they say we reason in a circle. We believe that the Bible, or we believe in God. Why? Because the Bible says so. Why do you believe the Bible? Because God wrote it. I would argue that if that was the only thing we believed in, we would have a precarious faith. Not an illogical faith, though. Circular reasoning is not illogical. It's just unconvincing. But nonetheless, it's not true. That isn't what most Christians believe. Most Christians have held to a twofold belief in revelation. That is, when I use the word revelation in this sermon today, I am speaking about what God has revealed of himself to human beings. And most Christians down through the centuries have held, according to what the Bible has taught, to two forms of revelation. One found in nature and the other found in scripture. The theoretical physicist and Anglican priest, John Polkinghorne, explains how faith and reason work together in his life. He says, the center of my faith lies in my encounter with the figure of Jesus Christ as I meet him in the gospels, in the witness of the church and of the sacraments. Here is the heart of my Christian faith and hope. Yet, a subsidiary but supportive level there are also hints of God's presence which arise from our scientific knowledge. The actual way we answer the question how turns out to point us on to pressing also the question why? So that science by itself is found not to be sufficiently intellectually satisfying. The only thing that has happened with the increase of science is that those who are closest to the science and understand it have deepened their faith in the belief of God. One of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century was the discovery that the universe began to exist. And the Pope declared that that was the greatest scientific discovery for the Christian faith. I would have to say that he is probably right with the exception of DNA. That is, the Christians look for evidence of God. Why is it wrong that the word of God, and we should expect when we read the Bible that is about all of reality, that is about all of history, that is about man, that when we close its pages and we go to the science book, why should we expect it to be a different story? The Bible is not here to confuse us. But we have to be able to distinguish between science and scientism. When it is real, objective fact, and when it is a prejudice. 
Christians have historically believed that God's existence is observable in creation and through the use of reason. In fact, theism is one of the most basic presuppositions of all human beings. The Bible itself does not expect Christians to simply believe that God exists based upon its testimony alone. Listen to what David says. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. Nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. Think of the wise men from Persia. They're not Jews. They're not Christians. But they follow a star. You know what they were? Astronomers. And they looked at the order of the universe and they saw how the stars behaved. And those stars that were in the sky 2,000 years ago are still there. They were able to discern the signs of the seasons based upon it. And they saw that there was order to the universe and they understood this was no accident. And it ultimately led them to a two-year-old boy who was the savior of the world, Christ Jesus. These magicians were led ultimately to salvation through an understanding of the natural world. And Paul has already told us, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So Christians, it is your responsible and right duty to understand how God has revealed himself, not only in scripture, but also in nature. So let me talk to you about general revelation. General revelation refers to what can be known about God through observation and interaction with his creation. And also what may be deduced by him based upon the principles of human reasoning. The 16th century Reformation theologian John Calvin wrote, The whole world is the theater of God's glory. The whole world is the theater of God's glory. You ever seen those documentaries on life or planet earth? They have some witty British person being the narrator. We get Sigourney Weaver. I feel like we got robbed in the American version. But have you ever seen it? Do you watch that and say, wow, God is glorious. How can you watch it and not see God's fingerprints on nature? No one tells the bird of paradise to have his feathers in such and such a way that looks like a face and to dance in such and such a way that the female bird of paradise will copulate with him and they'll make baby birds of paradise. 
No one taught the deep sea octopus to be able to change shape and color so that he can blend into the coral reef. No one told the earth to be at a precise distance and the precise size of the sun in order to have an orbital that doesn't burn up at closer times and freeze up at other times and to have the exact gravitational pull that will allow life to sustain itself. No one told the universe to have oxygen levels of 21% and not 15 where life couldn't exist. No one told Jupiter to be in a precise location in our solar system to keep the earth from being bombarded by asteroids. No one. You look at nature and it behaves in an organized and orderly way and nothing does that without a creator. Nothing. Christian, don't be afraid of science. Let the scientist reveal to you God's glory even to his own condemnation should he reject God. But know that many are not. R.C. Sproul notes that general revelation is both general in its content and its audience. In other words, it does not tell us specifically who God is. And it also tells something about God to everyone. I want to talk to you really briefly about three arguments that are often given for God's revelation. Number one, the cosmological argument. This is all based in general revelation. The cosmological argument says this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise one. The universe began to exist. Premise two. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, in an argument, an argument is based upon premises. And premises are statements that are either true or false. And so we have to, in order to find out whether or not this argument is sound, we have to A, determine whether or not the premises are true, and B, determine whether or not its form is valid. If the premises are true and the form is valid, it is sound and it is undeniable. Premise one, the universe or everything that begins to exist has a cause. Men, if you're in bed at night and you hear a little bang outside your window, that sounds like maybe the smash of your window, your wife's going to expect you to do what? Get up and check on it, right? Just a little bang. A little bang. What if there was a big bang? You're going to check that, aren't you? You're going to inquire about it, right? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. There's nothing in the world. You would not walk outside and see your glass on the ground from your window and say, oh, I don't know. It just happened for no reason. Nothing and no one did that. What would you say? You'd look at the evidence and you'd say, someone or something smashed my window. The effect is the smashed window and the cause. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I know it's something. It has to be because windows don't break for no reason. 
I tried to convince my dad that one time when we were in Nashville. I was chipping golf balls. My grandmother had a perfect yard for chipping golf balls. And I would just chip those golf balls. Man, was I good till I shanked one right through a bathroom window. That window had been there since, I don't know, the Passover, the first one. And I broke that window. And I tried to tell my dad, I don't know how it happened. And my father just said very simply, Son, someone or something broke it because he understands the very simple, true axiom that every effect has a cause. I am always stunned by the people who come and they say, yeah, we're pregnant. We don't know how it happened. (laughs) Young people will sometimes (laughs) say, I don't know how it happened. Let me explain to you how it happened. Every effect has a cause. Premise one's true. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Well, that we know that philosophically. We know that through science. Science has proven that the universe began to exist. There are multiple things I don't want to get into. Background radiation. The fact that you cannot, when you look at the Hubble telescope, the universe proves through the, through the Hubble telescope, they have what's called the red light shift and it proves that the universe is expanding. Well, guess what happens? If I rewind the universe, if they're expanding away from each other, if I were to rewind that, what would happen? Everything would be closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer until you had nothing. The universe began to exist. We also know it philosophically. We know it through the use of our reason. We look at the second law of thermodynamics and it tells us that the universe is running out of usable energy. Well, if the universe is eternal and it is running out of usable energy, it would have already run out by usable energy by now, right? Because it's eternal. But you can't go eternally back. You can't go infinitely back into the past. You can go infinitely into the future, but not infinitely into the past. And therefore, we know that premise two is also true. So if everything that begins to exist has a cause, and if the universe is one of those things that begins to exist, it follows then that the universe has a cause. What is the universe? The universe is everything, time, space, and matter. Everything. Time, space, and matter at one time did not exist it wasn't that there was a no there was a bunch of rocks out in the blackness floating around no listen to me there were no rocks there was no blackness there was no darkness there was no light in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth God said let there be light and guess what there was light for the first time. But the only sufficient explanation for a cause outside of the universe is a cause that is A, eternal, since time did not exist. It must be eternal, without time. It must be immaterial, since there was no matter. It must be orderly and intelligent, since the universe bears both. And it must be moral. The only explanation, according to Thomas Aquinas, is God. Second argument for God's existence. 
It's called the teleological argument. It comes from the Greek word teleos, which means the goal or the reason why something exists. Here's what the teleological argument says. Objects that are mechanically ordered have to be intelligently designed. The universe has objects in it that are mechanically ordered, and the universe itself is mechanically ordered. Therefore, the universe is intelligently designed. If you were walking in a field one day, and you came across a rock, and you picked it up and looked at it, there would be nothing in that rock that would tell you that there was a designer behind it. It's just a rock. It breaks, it's full of minerals, that's it. Let's say you're walking through that field, and you come across a watch, and you've never seen a watch before. And you pick up that watch and you look at it. The watch that my wife just bought me, you can see the gears on the back. It's got a glass back, it's beautiful. And when you look at the back, you can see all the gears and they're working together to tell time. They're working together for a purpose. And when you look at that, you have to say, someone made this. Because gears and objects don't randomly change and don't move towards order. It's the law of entropy. All objects move towards disorder. If you want to know what the law of entropy is, parents, just go and look at your teenager's room. Yes, they cleaned it yesterday, but it tends towards disorder. And so today it's going to be messy. And your teenager can tell you, it, just wait, mom. Just Can you imagine that? Just wait, mom. That shirt, if you just wait long enough, it'll fold itself and put itself right there in our dresser. That's not how objects behave. The point of this is that the universe demonstrates clear evidence of God's handiwork. Do you know that the, the eyeball performs something like 1,200 functions a second? so that you and I can see? Why should we see and not see? Why should we? Those objects are working together for a purpose, sight. And your biology professor would convince you that that happened by accident? If you take 200 chimpanzees and put them in a room with typewriters, I don't care how long they type, they're not producing Hamlet. They might not even get a single word, including the word, uh. And yet we believe that this beautiful world, not only the eyes that, not only the eyes that you can see with, but the eyes that you can look at and enjoy their beauty you believe this happened by accident? Unreasonable. Finally, Christians believe in what's called the moral argument for God's existence. And it goes like this. Some, it, are, it goes like this. Excuse me, let me grab my, my notes on this one. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God must exist. It works like this. If there is no God, there's no reason why I should do anything. Why should I not be a racist? Because it's not nice? 
Why should I not be a sexist? Or a thief or a rapist? Because it makes you unhappy? Or it makes you uncomfortable? So what? Who are you? You're no one. You're definitely not God. You're just another human being. If God does not exist, there is no reason for morality. None whatsoever. You want to see why our world is moving towards indefinite genders? Because they don't believe God exists. Why is it that criminals are constantly found innocent and we're explaining new biological functions for why a person was made to be an abuser? It's because God doesn't exist in their mind. But we know that there are objective moral values. We know that racism is wrong. It's not simply saying that this is the way, this is the way it is. It is saying this is the way it ought to be. It was that inclination that led not only Christians, but non-Christians as well to finally bring about the abolition of slavery. They just knew it. But if there's no God, that knowing anything really means nothing in an ultimate sense. It's just a feeling. But we know that the moral law does exist. We know that things like stealing are wrong. That sexual immorality is wrong. Racism is wrong and sexism and abuse are wrong. But the only way that makes sense is in a universe where God exists. And therefore, God must exist based upon the reality of the moral law. But all of this is nice. All of this is impressive. But if that's all we have are a couple arguments in the existence of God, we cannot know God. It takes a special kind of revelation. It takes God telling us something specific about the Creator. Something specific about the designer. Something specific about the moral law giver. Namely, that the creator creates for his glory. Namely, that all order that exists in the universe is designed by God. And that when we get out of that order, we have chaos, not cosmos. If you are going to live in God's universe, you must follow his design. You cannot, listen to me, this is what the word tells us, God will not be mocked. You cannot thwart his design for marriage and sexuality and worship and economics. You cannot go against that and live in a world of order. To reject God is to light a lantern in a sea of darkness. We have to follow God. We have to know specifically what he wants. Yes, it's clear that the nature, that the heavens declare the glory of God, but what is it that he wants from me? 
Because there are some other things that we can see about this universe, namely that there are some things here that shouldn't be here. And so it takes special revelation. Special revelation refers to what can be known about God through his own specific disclosure through the prophets, apostles, his son, and his word. Special revelation is the only sufficient means by which a person can know God truly and salvifically. J.I. Packer said it like this, God has now supplemented general revelation with the further revelation of himself as savior of sinners through Jesus Christ. So that if you read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We don't know that God's name. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The name of the God who made the heavens and the earth, who we see in nature, His name is Christ the Lord. He is the Creator. All things were made through Him. So that not a thing was made apart from him. The creator has a name. It is not Brahman. It is not Allah. It is not yourself. But Jesus Christ is the one who made the heavens and the earth. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul comes to a group of people, the Greeks, through whom Western civilization has benefited greatly because of their ability to philosophize and their contributions made in science and math. And Paul comes to Athens. If you want to know what Athens is, at the Areopagus, just imagine it is the Harvard it is the Harvard, it is the Princeton of ancient Greece, of the ancient world, Athens. It's the place where the smartest people live. And here comes a short, blind Jew, and he proclaims to them a specific message. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Imagine he's at a, at a university for all intents and practices. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. He says, men of Athens, you got the general revelation of God. I walked through your streets. You've got all these marble statues. You understand that... Human beings didn't just exist on their own or by accident, but that they are contingent upon a creator. He says, I perceive you're very religious, but what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the creator, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. 
In other words, men of Athens, you see all these statues and all these temples? You got it wrong. You don't know him. Yes, you have enough understanding that he must exist, but you don't know him because he doesn't dwell in temples. He doesn't live in statues. Nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries as their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God says the reason why, Paul says the reason why God made yellow, red and yellow, black and white. And he put them over here and over there was not that they would have their own false religion. But that they would seek and feel their way towards the true God. He says, yet... God is not far from each one of us. Not far means he's close, but you don't have him yet. And I'm afraid that many in church today are so close, but they don't have him yet. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being men God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God is not an idol. You cannot make God to dwell on a piece of marble. The St. Christopher statue on your dashboard has no power in it. The folly of idolatry is that we take a piece of wood and use it to keep us warm, to cook our food, to build our houses, all good purposes. But out of that same piece of wood, we would carve out a God and worship it. And Paul says, idolatry? It is a waste. God is not a... Gold or silver or stone image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, you've got it twisted. You don't form God in your image. He forms you in his. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, he says, the time of ignorance has passed. Now you know God's name. You know salvation is in the one and only Jesus Christ. And to walk out of here today and deny him is on your own head. Christ will share his throne and glory with no one. And listen to what it says. 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among those were also Dionysius the Oropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You see, in the average chat room or classroom or water cooler, it's fine to talk about religion. It's fine to talk about God. Watch the Golden Globes. Watch the Emmys and the Oscars. Everybody who gets up, the first thing they want to do is thank God and everyone applauds. Because God without a name is nothing. But when God's name is defined in a person, Jesus Christ, and the resurrection, that's where the rubber hits the road. What is the offense? Jesus Christ is the offense. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they were good believing in a creator. They were good believing in an order to the universe. They were good believing in morality. But when you said that God became a man, died on a cross and rose from the dead, they were done. And on that day, they sealed their fate. Unbelief is not simply unbelief. It is rejection. Paul said in Romans 1.18, men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The Bible tells us that atheism is not simply an amoral belief. It is a sinful belief based upon human unrighteousness. In Psalm 14.1, David says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the fool is not some sad sap or sorry Charlie fumbling and bumbling his way through life because he can't help but be goofy. The fool is a person that has his wits about him. The fool is not the simple person without education. He is the one who is educated and trusts in his intelligence rather than the revelation of God. Therefore, Christians and non-believers know this day that there are no quote-unquote confused people. There are no quote-unquote seekers no quote-unquote searchers. The idea that we are all searching for God stands in stark contradiction with what the Bible says about man, namely that no one seeks after God, no, not one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand and who seek after him. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. This morning, 
I want us to consider whether or not we have received the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. Someone will ask, aren't some people just intellectually unsure whether or not God exists? They may be unsure, but they are not unresponsible for their denial of God. The writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Atheism is not simply unbelief, it is rejection of God. Leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This morning I appeal to you by God's revelation of himself not to harden your heart towards him, but to believe on his name, the name of Christ Jesus, the only God, for the forgiveness of your sins. Would every one of you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? If you have rejected the revelation of God, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to repent and to receive the Son who is the greatest revelation of God. You might believe that there is a big guy up in the sky, but Christ is the name, the only name for salvation. You cannot be a Christian while rejecting God's revelation of his son. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hear God's revelation this morning. You're not simply unsure according to God's revelation. You're not simply confused. You are rejecting what he has made known through creation, through scripture, and through his son. Faith in God begins this morning in repentance. That is what it means to repent. To not simply turn from sin, but to turn to God. To believe in God is to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For whoever has the Son has the Father, but the one who has not the Son has neither the Father as well.
this morning, I want to encourage you after the sermon, if you want to know Christ and you want to begin to live the Christian life, I want to encourage you to come after the service this morning and speak with me. I'll spend all day if I have to. Father, you have revealed yourself so beautifully in what you have made, but you have revealed yourself more beautifully on a cross that you, God, would become a man, dwell among us, and then take upon yourself all of our sins on a cross is the most beautiful revelation there is. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that we would trust in you as Christ and God of the universe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.